Volume One, Chapter Twenty Two of Autobiography of a Seaman by Thomas Cochrane. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. Arrival in England. On the twenty sixth of April, His Majesty was pleased to confer on me the knighthood of the Order of the Bath. Soon after Lord Gambier's arrival in England, Lord Mulgrave informed me that a vote of thanks to the Commander in Chief would be proposed in the House of Commons. Whereupon I told Lord Mulgrave that it was my duty to apprise him that in my capacity as one of the members for Westminster, I would oppose the motion on the ground that the Commander-in-Chief had not only done nothing to merit a vote of thanks, but had neglected to destroy the French fleet in eight roads, when it was clearly in his power to do so. Lord Mulgrave entreated me not to persist in this determination as such a course would not only prove injurious to the government but highly detrimental to myself by raising up against me a host of enemies the public said his lordship was satisfied with what had been done and gave me full credit for my share therein so that as i should be included in the vote of thanks the recognition of lord gambier's services could do me no harm i told his lordship that speaking as a member of the house of commons i did not recognise lord gambier's services at all for that none had been rendered and as for any thanks to myself i would rather be without them feeling conscious that i had not been enabled satisfactorily to carry out the earnest wishes of the admiralty by the destruction of the enemy's fleet as impressed on me by his lordship before accepting the command with which i had been entrusted i nevertheless begged his lordship to consider that in my professional capacity as a naval officer i neither did offer nor had offered any opinion whatever on lord gambier's conduct but that my position as a member of parliament for westminster forbade my acquiescence in a public misrepresentation lord mulgrave replied that i was even now accusing lord gambier in my professional capacity the public would not draw the distinction between my professional and parliamentary conduct i expressed my regret for the public want of discrimination but told his lordship that this would not alter my determination soon after this conversation lord mulgrave sent for me and again entreated me for my own sake to reconsider my resolution saying that he had reported our former conversation to the government which was highly dissatisfied therewith his lordship further assured me that he was anxious about the matter on my account as the course instituted would certainly bring me under higher displeasure to this i replied that the displeasure of the government would not for a moment influence my parliamentary conduct for which i held myself answerable to my constituents his lordship then said if you are on service you cannot be in your place in parliament now my lord i will make you a proposal i will put under your orders three frigates with carte blanche to do whatever you please on the enemy's coasts in the mediterranean i will further get you permission to go to sicily and embark on board your squadron my own regiment which is stationed there you know how to make use of such advantages i thanked lord mulgrave for the offer at the same time expressing my gratitude for his anxiety to preserve me from the evils of acting contrary to the wishes of the government but told his lordship that were i to accept his offer the country would regard my acquiescence as a bribe to hold my peace whilst i could not regard it in any other light self-respect must therefore be my excuse for declining the proposal the anxiety of the government was no doubt to convert what had been effected in a roads into political capital as a victory which merited the thanks of parliament my tacit acquiescence in the object of government would have subjected me and rightly to a total loss of political confidence in the estimation of those 
with whom I acted. No man with the slightest pretensions to personal honesty or political consistency could, therefore, have decided otherwise than I did. Even with the kind warning of Lord Mulgrave that evil consequences to myself would follow, a prediction subsequently verified to the letter. The upshot of the matter was that on Lord Mulgrave communicating my determination to Lord Gambier, the latter demanded a court-martial. As soon as my fixed resolution of opposing the vote of thanks became known to the government, the Board of Admiralty directed Lord Gambier to make a fresh report of the action in Basque Roads, requiring his lordship to call upon various officers for further reports as to the part they took therein. Accordingly, on the 10th of May, Lord Gambier forwarded a new dispatch to the Admiralty, in which my services were altogether passed over, notwithstanding that, in Lord Gambier's previous report, he had written as follows, quote, I cannot speak in sufficient terms of admiration and applause of the vigorous and gallant attack made by Lord Cochrane upon the French line of battle ships which were on shore, as well as of his judicious manner of approaching them and placing his ship in a position most advantageous to annoy the enemy and preserve his own ship, which could not be exceeded by any feat of valour hitherto achieved by the British Navy. Still more singularly, in the second dispatch, which is too long for insertion, Lord Gambier inadvertently confirms the fact that no attack on the French fleet would have been made at all had it not been for my having commenced an attack with the Imperieuse alone, which movement, as has been said, was executed literally by stealth under the fear that the signal of recall would be hoisted by the Commander-in-Chief. Footnote. The letter in question will be found at page 7 of Minutes of a Court-Martial on Lord Gambier, taken in shorthand by W.B. Gurney and, as therein stated, revised by his lordship. Footnote ends. It having, for reasons described in a former chapter, become imperative on Lord Gambier to send us assistance, he nevertheless construed this into an intention on his part to attack the enemy. Quote, Observing the Imperius to advance, and the time of flood nearly done running, the indefatigable, etc., etc., were ordered to the attack. End quote. It is not very probable that had Lord Gambier intended an attack, he would have let the flood tide go by without taking advantage of it in a channel which was afterwards declared unsafe from want of water. This passage alone of Lord Gambier's second dispatch ought to have decided the result of any court-martial. The Board of Admiralty would not, however, see anything inculpatory of their former colleague, but on the 29th of May ordered me through their secretary to become the accuser of the Commander-in-Chief. I am commanded by their lordships to signify their directions that you state fully to me for their information the grounds on which your lordship objects to the vote of thanks being moved to lord gambier to the end that their lordship's objections may be of a nature to justify the suspension of the intended motion in parliament or to call for any further information signed w w pole this command was manifestly intended to entrap me into the position of Lord Gambier's prosecutor, and was, moreover, an improper inference with my parliamentary capacity, in which alone I had declared my intention to oppose an uncalled-for vote of thanks to the Commander-in-Chief. I therefore wrote to the Secretary of the Admiralty the subjoined reply. Letter begins. Portman Square, 30th of May, 1809. Sir, I have to request that you will submit to their Lordships that I shall, at all times, entertain a due sense of the honour they will confer by any directions they may be pleased to give me, that in pursuing the object of these directions my exertions will invariably go hand in hand with my duty, and that to satisfy their lordships' minds in the present instance, I beg leave to state that the log and signal books of the fleet in Basque Roads 
contain all particulars and furnish premises whence accurate conclusions may be drawn that as these books are authentic public documents and as i cannot myself refer to them anything i could offer to their lordships on the subject would be altogether superfluous and would appear presumptuous interruptions of their lordships judgment which will doubtless always found itself upon those grounds only that it cannot be disputed i have etc etc cochrane the honourable w w pole secretary of the admiralty letter ends this reply though plain was respectful but as i had afterwards good reason to know was deemed very offensive the result being that after two months delay to enable lord gambier to get up his defence a court-martial was assembled on the twenty sixth of july on board the gladiator at portsmouth the court being composed of the following members president sir roger curtis port admiral admirals young stanhope campbell douglas duckworth and sutton captains irwin dixon hall and dunn it may perhaps be asked in what way a court-martial on lord gambier can so far concern me as to occupy a prominent place in this autobiography the reply is that notwithstanding my repudiation i was regarded at the court-martial as his accuser though not permitted to be present so as to cross-examine witnesses the whole proceeding being conducted in my absence rather as a prosecution against me than lord gambier and the result was injurious to myself as lord mulgrave had predicted involving the punishment of not being employed with my frigate at flushing there to put in execution plans for the certain destruction of the french fleet in the scheldt so that in order to punish me the enemy's fleet was suffered to remain in security when it might easily have been destroyed the reader must not imagine that i am about to inflict on him the evidence of a nine days trial but without some extracts therefrom it is impossible to comprehend the matter let him bear in mind that lord gambier relied for justification on three points first that had he sent in the fleet its safety would have been endangered by the fortifications of a which he had previously spoken of as being dismantled second want of water to navigate the fleet in safety and thirdly from the fire of the enemy's vessels driven ashore though lightened of their guns and stores Quote, captain broughton of the illustrious i was in basque roads in the amelia on the seventeenth of march and when within gunshot of the isle of a observed the fortifications as being under repair from the quantity of rubbish thrown up i thought the fortifications on the island were not so strong as was supposed and so reported to lord gambier this was on the first of april i did not notice any furnaces for heating red-hot shot we were just out of gunshot they fired at us from both sides but none reached us Quote ends. In reply to the question whether everything was done that could be done to effect the destruction of the enemy's ships, Captain Broughton said, quote, It would have been more advantageous if the line of battleships, frigates, and small vessels had gone in at half flood about eleven o'clock. There were nine sail ashore, and if the British ships had been ordered in, it would have been more advantageous. There were only two of the enemy's ships at anchor, and the fleet, had it gone in, would have been exposed to their fire but i conceived they were panic-struck and on the appearance of a force might have been induced to cut their cables and escape up the river a ship or two might have been placed in my opinion against the batteries on the southern part of the isle d'aix so as to take off their fire and silence them i told sir henry neal on board the caledonia when the signal was made for all captains in the mooring that they were attackable from the confused way in which the french ships were at the time viz from having run ashore in the night in order to escape from the fire-ships which they imagined would explode as the wind was north-westerly and northerly ships might have found safe anchorage in what is called in my french chart 
la grande trousse where there is thirty or forty feet of water out of range of shot or shells in any direction when we first came into basque roads if the charts were to be believed there appeared to be water enough in that position i do not know anything of any shoal water i sounded from the wreck of the Varsovie to that anchorage and found no shoal there two ships of the line would have been sufficient to have silenced the batteries on a and five or six of the least draught of water to attack the enemy's ships the discomfited french squadron would have made very little resistance their loss would have been very little as few of their ships were in a situation to fight their guns Quote ends. here a distinguished officer shows that two ships could have silenced the batteries that in case of damage there was plenty of water for them to retire out of reach and that the french ships being ashore could not use their guns Quote begins captain pulteney malcolm of the donegal i saw the enemy's three-decker on shore till about noon she was heeling over considerably and appeared to me to be heaving her guns overboard she got off about two o'clock all the ships got off except those that were destroyed had it appeared to me that there was no other chance of destroying those ships but by such an attack i certainly think it ought to have been made had they been attacked by the british ships in my opinion they could not have been warped off from the shore as it was necessary so to do to lay out anchors to heave them off question would you had you commanded the british fleet have sent ships in to attack the enemy ships on shore answer the moment the two ships quitted their defensive position the risk was then small and of course i would have sent them in instantly Quote ends. this evidence is pretty decisive but its plain tendency was attempted to be neutralized by the question whether there would have been risk of damage had the british fleet been sent in to attack the enemy ships when ashore the great point of defence throughout was risk to the ships as though the chief use of ships of war was to save them from injury Quote, captain f newcomb of the beagle can you state any instance of neglect misconduct or inattention in the proceedings of the commander-in-chief between the eleventh and the eighteenth answer none save and except had the commander-in-chief thought proper from his situation to have sent in vessels earlier than they were sent though there might be a great risk in doing so there was a possibility of annoying the enemy more than they were annoyed captain george francis seymour of the palace i saw the imperieuse inform the commander-in-chief by signal that if allowed to remain he could destroy the enemy there was every prospect of preventing them from getting off as it would prevent them carrying out hawsers to heave off by from what i afterwards saw i think the ships might have floated in sooner they might have come in with the last half of the flood-tide president how much sooner would that have been than the time they actually did join answer at eleven o'clock question what time did the line of battle ships join answer within a short time after two o'clock question is your opinion formed from information obtained since the twelfth of april or on that day answer it was formed from the depth of water we found on going in Quote ends. this evidence coming from an officer of captain seymour's character and standing was so decisive that it was subjected to a severe cross-examination of which the subjoined is the substance Quote, it is impossible for me to foretell the event of such an attack it is so much depending on fortuitous circumstances i cannot say that the line of battleships should have gone in i was not in possession of the commander-in-chief's information i state the fact and leave the court to judge i mean to say there would have been water enough for the line of battleships to have floated in as to the opposition they would have met with the court has as much before them as i have
End of quote. If the reader will refer to Lord Gambier's expression in his second dispatch on the 10th of May, it will be evident that no attack whatever was intended. Quote, but observing the imperious to advance, end quote, it became imperative to support her, that is, when the flood tide had nearly done running. This is the true explanation of the British ships having been sent in at all. I repeat that the advance of the Imperieuse thus forced on the little that was done. Had an attack been seriously intended, the time at which the British fleet should have gone in was that pointed out by the preceding officers, viz. when the French ships were aground and the whole within reach of destruction, instead of when the few, which were unable to get off by any exertions, were assailed. To have rested a case upon the danger to the British fleet from the fire of the ships ashore, with their guns thrown overboard to lighten them, was a course of defence which, for the honour of the British Navy, is elsewhere unparalleled. There is no necessity to adduce further extracts on this head, and I have purposely refrained from introducing my own evidence, but the animus by which the court was actuated in the case must not be lightly passed over. One of the principal witnesses was, as a matter of course, the captain of the fleet, Sir Harry Neal. This officer, though thoroughly conversant with both the acts and intentions of the commander-in-chief, was directed by the president openly not to state the opinions he had given to Lord Gambier on public services. By Admiral Young, Sir Harry Neal was told to say nothing but what he was directed to detail. This would be incredible were it not printed in the minutes of the court-martial, revised by Lord Gambier. Quote, Sir H. Neal, Captain of the Fleet. There were continued conversations between the Commander-in-Chief and me. I have given him my opinion on different services, some of those he may have approved, and some he may not have approved. President, I apprehend these are not to be stated. Quote ends. Yet Sir H. Neal carefully marked the distinction between private conversation and the public service by using the term different services, he being evidently ready to tell all he knew as regarded the public service. He was, however, stopped by Admiral Young in one of the strangest injunctions which ever fell from the lips of a judge. Quote, Admiral Young, if you are directed to detail any circumstances, you are then to say all that you know of the circumstances. You are directed to detail, but if you are asked a specific question, your oath, I imagine, will only oblige you to answer specifically and directly, and as fully as you can, the question which is proposed to you. End quote. So that Sir Harry Neal was cautioned that, if he was not directed to detail circumstances, he was not to relate them, however important they might be, and if asked only a specific question, he was merely to answer specifically, though the court could know nothing of the facts, unless they permitted the witnesses to tell the truth and the whole truth in the very words of the oath. But as Sir Harry Neal was known to be a man not likely to be thus peremptorily silenced, half a dozen insignificant questions were, therefore, only put to him by the court, with the exception of one or two leading questions from Lord Gambier. End of chapter 22 Recording by Timothy Ferguson, Gold Coast, Australia